Okay. Uh, well, thank you very much for, these, uh, for the nice introduction, uh, Professor Kumas, and um, I'm happy to be here. It's always uh, great to come back and, and see some of you again and, and meet new people. And so, uh, so I'm, I'm here excited to uh, present the content of my new book. There it is. And uh, hopefully also hear feedback from you, uh, ideas you know, reactions, uh, things that, that you might want to add and uh, how I could perhaps uh, refine the argument. Um, that said, I'm a little bit nervous, and this being Japan, you always start with an apology, I guess. This book is not written for, uh, for an audience that knows Japan well or an audience that, uh, that, that is Japanese. It was actually written for Americans that um, have not looked at Japan uh, for, well, the last 10 years or 15 years. And so when you talk to the standard American, there's some sort of knowledge there how Japan works. And so what this book tries to do is to, to update this knowledge. So uh, let, me, let me just uh, motivate this. Uh, and and uh, some of you may know this, but, but, but perhaps not. Um, so Japan marked 73 months of economic growth. Uh, just last month, um, and, and it gets better. There's uh, uh, the current account balance surplus increased for the sixth straight year and reached the highest levels in 1985. The newspaper yesterday reported that uh, Japanese car exports are the highest since 1985, which uh, was a year uh, we were reminded in that article uh, that the U.S. imposed voluntary export restraints. So we're back to the market, I guess. Um, Japanese companies have listed, uh, uh, have posted record combined pre-tax profits for the sixth year in a row. Uh, the newspaper yesterday also reported that uh, in March 2009, they are expected to report a loss for the first time in, nine, in seven years or something like that. But so there's this uh, very interesting phenomenon of, post, of record, reporting this in negative terms. Uh, but it is actually quite an accomplishment, if you think about it. And had you invested $100 in January 2003, you would now have 200 um, Even though the Nikkei, of course, is not a good indicator of, of necessarily of, of reorganization, and it's affected by all kinds of things. Still, uh, this is something that the American audience actually lost out on. And uh, this, perhaps, might be uh, the most surprising thing, and this is the, the, the point that I would like to uh, to talk about today is that the leaders behind this growth are not your household names. It is actually, yeah, Sony and, and Panasonic and so forth are doing great after they've turned themselves around, but the leaders behind this are companies that you may or may not have heard about before, even you that, that live in Japan, places like JSR, uh, Nitto Denko, and, and Astellas. And I'll talk a little bit about what these companies do. Um, first of all, uh, you might not, I just want to visualize uh, uh, what, what we just uh, heard already. Japan's longest boom in record-keeping history is, is the current one, right? Uh, this is longer than the Izanagi boom of, um, of the 1960s. And so then the question is, how could this happen? Well, how is this possible? In, in, the fact that the newspapers don't report it doesn't mean it's not happening, so here we go. Um, let, me, let me ask you this, um, or invite you to think about this. Who makes the screens for LCD TVs. And if you think about it, um, you might come up with uh, some correct answers and, and some wrong answers. The answers are these, are the these are the six firms that make LCD TVs. Nobody else makes these screens. Okay, so um, Samsung, LG Philips, Sharp, 
the only Japanese company that actually is in the production. Sony does not make these things. They, they, they make the back end of it, but not the actual screen. And then there's three Taiwanese firms. Okay. So uh, the media makers believe that Samsung is a leader in this market and has the technology and so forth. But the interesting thing, of course, is that this LCD TV screen is a very complicated technical matter. It's much more complicated to put together than an automobile, and it has, in fact, 24 layers. This particular uh, slice here is from Nitodenko, and Nitodenko makes these six layers that are involved, uh, various types of polarizing films, stuff that makes the contrast stand out, that makes the black blacker and the viewing angle wider. And um, so if you were to decompose an LCD screen put together by Samsung, you would find that 80% of the value added, the technological the advanced parts of that screen are actually made by Japanese companies. And these are companies like Top One Printing, Fujifilm Holdings, uh, JSR, which started out as a synthetic rubber farm and now makes polarizing <coughs> films, Tejin, uh, which some of you may remember as a textiles company, makes one of these levels. And, and the thing here is, the, the point that I would like to make is that the reason we don't know about, uh, if you can't, don't worry about it, I'll, I'll read it to you. The reason we don't know about, or the press doesn't report properly about what's happening in Japan is that this new Japanese growth is driven by the materials and component, electronic component sectors. And when we buy a TV screen or TV, it might say Samsung, well, not, not in this market, but in the United States, uh, it might say Samsung and it might say, you know, uh, LG or Philips in, in Europe. But the fact of the matter is uh, that, that the Japanese technology is behind this. Uh, I'm also told, although only Steve Jobs knows this for sure, that 90% of the stuff that makes the iPod a really cool thing uh, comes out of Japan. And we don't know it because it says Apple and it says assembled in China. Okay, so you get the drift. All right, so uh, here's my story of what actually happened. How is it possible that Japan, uh, that Japan's uh, component and materials industries and then followed by some other um, uh, companies were able to turn themselves around after the awful 1990s. And the argument that I make is that Japan has undergone what in business strategy we would like to call a strategic inflection point. Uh, some of you may be mathematicians. Uh, in mathematics, a strategic an, inf an inflection point is, uh, is, a, is a point where the first derivative turns zero and then it changes signs, right? The second. So you get a little curve that changes its form. Uh, in strategy, uh, Robert Bergelman at Stanford and Andy Grove from Intel have written a paper about the strategic inflection point using the terminology. And with, th with that, they mean a point in time when the dynamics of the competitive setting change such that it takes completely new ways to win in that setting. The internet is a great example. But you can also think about refrigeration or the arrival of the telephone. You can, we, in history, in business history, we've gone through, the world has gone through strategic inflection points in a, in a variety of ways. Um, I think that what happened in Japan between 1998 and 2006 is best understood as a strategic inflection point in the political economy that has, com that has fundamentally changed the const constraints and incentives faced by Japanese CEOs. And therefore, what they have to do to win is very different from what it used to be. So let me explain this in a little bit more detail. Um, first, some of you may say, well, how did, it, 
how did the strategic inflection point uh, come about? And I think I can cut this short because many of you were here for this and it wasn't pretty. Um, the banking crisis probably was underestimated by many in terms of its severity. It, it really was very close to a, to a meltdown, you may know that. Um, globalization is a word often used, but uh, what's actually important about globalization is that the import ratio, which is the, the number of stuff that Japanese can buy that is, that is brought into this company, uh, country has doubled between 1995 and 2000. It went from 5% to something like 6% to 13%. Right. Now, you might say that's still low, but the, the effect of this is, of course, phenomenal in terms of bringing choice and bringing competition and, and price competition. And you know the stores because you go there and buy Uniqlo and, you know, and, and, and so forth. Um, my, my personal heroes and on the political scene are, are Hashimoto and Koizumi, and, uh, and I, I think you've all heard uh, Koizumi talk about leave it to the market, and he actually meant it. And he did a lot of things that would, um, <coughs> in addition to privatizing the postal office, that really um, shifted Japan towards the market. And I'll say a little bit more about that in a second. And then, of course, social distress. I mean, there, there was a need there, and, and it was obvious. I mean, all you had to do is walk by, you know, Ueno Park or take the subway, and you could see that there was a lot of suffering and social distress, and something had to happen, which then fed back into the political entrepreneurship. So all of this meant that in 1999, Japan reached a, a tipping point where things just didn't work anymore, and so the, the new things could happen. And uh, let me tell you what I think these new things are that then have created a new strategic concept, context for Japanese firms and therefore a new industrial architecture. Um, uh, the, the, the banks, the banking crisis was so bad that the banks had to stop doing this informal workout where they just this weight, they had to just basically go and um, uh, switch to direct disposals of bad loans. And what that meant is they would take whatever collateral there was, sell it at 10 cents to the dollar, and close it down. And that meant that there was suddenly a market for stuff to buy. And I'll get back to that in just a moment. So the banks changed what the banks were doing. Um, the government introduced sunshine laws. This is Hashimoto's uh, Big Bang, actually. We might have poo-pooed it at the time, but from hindsight, it's actually is a, a fundamental change in how Japanese companies are reporting what they're doing, consolidated uh, uh, accounting. We now know how many subsidiaries there are and how much money exactly each subsidiary makes. So we can actually look at Japanese corporate reports, and they're more meaningful than they were in the past. Um, there are also now things like quarterly earnings reports, which I think before 1998 we could only dream of. And, and if we saw one, we wouldn't have believed it. But now they're there, they're on time, and they're actually uh, believable. Um, new bankruptcy uh, legislation. Uh, you could argue that capitalism uh, is about free entry and free exit. And Japan had neither. Uh, it was difficult to enter and it was even more difficult to exit once you were in the market because somebody would bail out these companies and then we'd have these zombies. So bankruptcy legislation beginning in 2000 offered companies that were in distress new options. They could decide to go out of business, they could have parts of their subsidiaries go out of business, or they could restructure in, in a Chapter 11 sort of way, or they could go to their bank and do the old thing. But the point here is that companies have options of what to do when they hit, you know, some block on the road. Um, there are new rules on uh, corporate governance, and this you might know uh, 
about because it's so in the news and it's so recent, October last year, we now have JSOX. Um, the upshot of this is that if you are on a board of directors and your board does something that's not quite right, you might actually go to jail. And that has caught the interest of uh, some Japanese executives. And um, the fact that some of these good people had to go to jail uh, just reinforced the new message. Okay. And uh, what I want to talk a little bit more about today is this, this whole idea of the foreign investors and how did they come where did they come from and why are they here and is that a good thing? Okay, uh, but before I go there, one more thing on the change, on this fundamental strategic inflection. Uh, Curtis Milhaupt and Katerina Pistor at, uh, at Columbia have, um, are in the process of writing a new book where they make this particular argument for Germany and other places, and uh, for Japan it is very interesting, and that is that there is a, a new demand to use legal processes and the courts to actually affect things in this country. And, you probably have, have seen this. Here's the analytical kind of explanation. Uh, civil law-based countries like Germany and Japan, um, there is a little bit of a misunderstanding or oversimplification on how exactly what the, what the role of judges is, but fundamentally there's an interpretation of what the law says. That's what judges do, they interpret the law. But if a company wants to introduce a new thing, say a stock option, and it's not in the law, then the company can't do this un unless the law is rewritten first. Right? So what companies have to do then is lobby politicians to change the law so that now stock options can be issued. Right? In the US, this is very different uh, because in the United States, we have this uh, post-remedy regulation system where a company just issues this sort of paper, I call it a stock option, and then some trouble might occur right, with Enron or something like that, um, you know, accounting and that sort of thing. And uh, okay, so now let's go to court and figure out uh, just how to regulate this piece of paper that you call a stock option. And what that means really, if you think about it, is that companies can innovate without first having politicians rewrite the law. In 2001, Japan's Ministry of Justice announced that they would switch to a post-remedy regulation system. That is to say that companies can do what companies want to do, and if there is a problem, then we'll meet in court. Right? And the, the Ministry of Justice made that announcement. Meti happily signed, Meti, I'm sorry, happily signed off on it. And, um, and therefore, we now get a lot of activity on companies doing things that they did not do before, that they could not do before. And we also see more activity in the courts. You know, and judges all of a sudden have to, uh, you know, uh, judge on things that they may or may not know, so there's, there's, there are problems there, but the switch is fundamental. Because what that means is that managers have much more flexibility in what they want to do, and um, you know, the, 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 the bureaucrats are not in this, in this game anymore, and the fundamental line here is that there is now a market for rules. Companies can innovate, judges can innovate, there's a market, it can be contested, uh, whatever you think of Hortier and Lifedoor, he can go and sue. Right, and, and we'll talk a little bit more about that market for acquisitions. But I think this is a fundamental, uh, almost philosophical change in how regulation is done in this country. And that has really changed the way in which the leading CEOs of this country think about what they're doing with their businesses. Okay, so, um, so here's, um, here's why we care about all of this. 
when you go to, uh, you know, I, I sometimes when I when I give this talk in the United States, I actually ask this question. I cold call people. And I don't want to do this to you now. It's a late in the day. But um, if I if I cold called you, I think you would, or the typical audience, you know, certainly in America, would give me the following answers. What do you know about Japanese business? Well, they've got these business groups. And, um, you know, and, and, and so you know, there's a lot of misunderstanding about the Kira, about their business groups. Then Japan has a main bank system. There are these internal processes of corporate governance. Then Japan has lifetime employment. And uh, there's some sort of uh, bureaucrats running the country, and that's all a cartel. And, um, and so, therefore, it's very difficult to enter this market. And so, um, and so that's Japan. And the point that I would like to make, and that, that I, maybe with you all, I, I will not have that hard a time to actually you know, convince you that, that this is so, that the strategic logic underlying these things has changed. So I'm not arguing that they're going away. But they're not. They're, 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 some of them are going away. The main bank system, I think, for all intents and purposes, has gone away for large firms. But it's not that they're going away so much, but that they have to perform different functions if they want to remain viable in the 21st century. Right. So, uh, and so then I have in my book chapters on all of these things, um, and let me just give you a flavor of this. The business groups, with the exception of Mitsubishi, which is still very tight, have loosened up tremendously. And places like Sanwa, you know, I, mean, I imagine there's a President's Council lunch and nobody shows. And, um, and so that's a little bit what's happening. And so my argument here is that unless these business groups change their value proposition, they will not attract members, or they will not keep their members, and therefore they will just evaporate. Now Mitsubishi has a value proposition that appeals to its members, but, but the others don't. So um, uh, let me, the, the point here I want to make is that the strategic logic underlying these has changed. And to make this argument, let me just very briefly summarize what I think the strategic logic of these used to be. Why were they there in the first place, and how have they changed? Okay, so we've all seen this chart, post-war GDP growth, and the point here is that that it wasn't a smooth ride, that the year-on-year -year GDP uh, changes were quite dramatic. Right? So if you had been a CEO in this system here, right, and, and I assume, and, and actually I, I strongly believe that the CEOs that were running large Japanese companies were very smart and they knew exactly what they were doing. And so what, in this situation, what were their incentives? You know, how were they constrained by the system and what, the, what were they incentivized to do? And the answer is that they were, um, the bank strategies were under regulated interest rates, they were going for volume, right? Because the spread is fixed, so the more loans you give, the more money you make. The companies were highly indebted. We, we know this, I'll, ch I'll show you a chart in a moment. So they were actually just worried about stability because with, with GDP growth year on year changing like this and high exposure to bank loans, that's a risky business. Right? So stability is very important. And then, of course, there's lifetime employment. And lifetime employment sets some really weird incentives to diversify into ever new businesses because the only way to grow, you would grow into new business, but you could never exit an old business because that would have meant to fire people. He couldn't fire people, so he kept the old business and added new businesses to it. Right? So there were, um, um, there were a number of reasons why. I would, before I go there, here, here's the debt equity ratio. I don't know whether you're actually aware of this. Um, 
this is the Google years of economic growth. The field companies had an equity ratio of nine, which means they had um, uh, 900 times uh, the, the debt that they, had that they had equity. And the debt, of course, was all bank loans. For all large industries, it stood at over six in the 70s. Okay. That's enormous. Um, what we also see here is that this has changed since 1998 and has quite normalized to levels between one and two, which is, which is just fine. Uh, while you're, uh, while we're at this, also the, the shape, of the form of debt has changed from bank loans to, to just bond issues. But that's a, that's a minor detail. Okay. Um, the problem if you're a CEO in this period is that you need to survive somehow. And what you do is you want to ensure that you don't go under uh, or that some banker comes in and bails you out. So you, you join a business group, you engage in cross-shareholdings, you buy insurance through this trade in the business group, and then you diversify into many, many markets because if you are in semiconductors or in the old days, if you're in steel and hotels and real estate and something else, then even if one of these goes down, you're still alive. Right? So there are strong incentives to diversify into all kinds of different businesses. And uh, the banks also like this because if you are diversified in a new business, they could give you new loans uh, to build new plants and do new things. So the, thing, the, the point here is that in the post-war period, the incentives for CEOs of large Japanese firms were to diversify. Okay. And so we get the steady process of conglomeration, and people have, have studied this in the 70s and 80s, and we can see how the large Japanese companies were, were branching out into new businesses. Um, and uh, we, we've heard this before, but, but let me just tie the two dots together. Uh, we've, we've heard from, from James Beglin and others that market share was very important in the old days. And we also know that market share was very important in the old days because it gave the larger, the, the, the higher the draft pick of new talent of, of the graduating class. We had the large companies were allowed to go to Todai first. Um, industrial policies were based on market share quotas, export quotas, import quotas, that sort of thing, and access to bank loans because the IBJ and, and, and friends would give more loans to the largest companies. So there were all kinds of incentives on the, on the bank side to diversify. Shareholders didn't care because the shareholders were other corporations and they were in the same boat and they were in these business groups, so diversification is great. And uh, I actually, I just was told, and I, I did not know this, uh, surprised to hear, but apparently the stock market prices in the 60s and 70s also reflected market share. So if, uh, if Hitachi had a higher market share than Toshiba in one of these markets, then Toshiba's uh, stock price was supposed to be lower. And if that wasn't so, then something was amiss. Okay. So what do we know about diversification? Well, we do know something. Uh, we actually know uh, quite a bit because uh, the United States actually had a lot of conglomerates in the 1970s as well uh, for slightly different reasons. But, uh, but that was actually the theory in the 1970s. I mean, if you, if you go back and you open the business strategy book in, in the 1970s, you would, you would learn that diversification is good because it reduces the risk of failure, um, you know, and it, 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 it's, it might increase profits, and from hindsight, then we also know that it probably will decrease profits if the diversification is unrelated. I'll show you more on that in a moment. Um, the problem with diversification is that it's not clear just what is overly diversified. So should a 
train company have a department store on top of the train station? Is that, is that a good diversification or not? And it's very difficult to say. And you can argue this both ways. Um, but in Japan, this was coupled with a sales priority, so there was like diversify as you can. Go, go, go. Get more loans, get into new businesses, build the department store, and then while you're at it, also get into real estate, and then you can also have a golf course, and then you can do all kinds of other wonderful things, like resort hotels and very far away areas. And so uh, what that meant is that Japanese companies saw a decline in performance over time. And we know this from theory, and it happened just as in theory. And then, of course, we get the bubble. So I'm going for, fast forwarding to 1987. On a, in addition to 40 years of diversification, you get exuberant diversification, where it was really crazy. Okay. So, um, so the problem is this, and we, there's there, there's a, a huge literature uh, and, and strategy on this, and uh, somebody did a meta-analysis, so they took all of these papers and then they threw them in one pot and started and said, okay, what, what do all the papers on diversification tell us? And, and the, the overall summary is that uh, a, a company that is in a single business will probably have lower performance than a company that is diversified into, into related business. So if you're in, uh, um, you know, if you're in washers and dryers, you know, diversifying into uh, refrigerators or other household appliances might be a good idea or, you know, other household things. Um, but if you then also go into semiconductors or other things that are not actually related, then you might see a decline in performance. And, uh, and in fact, uh, we know that, that more likely the costs of diversification greatly exceed the benefits. Okay. So that's in a nutshell what happened to Japanese companies. And um, I mentioned that from the United States, we know this because in the United States we had a huge conglomeration in the 1970s and then that broke open in the 80s. And uh, you might recall uh, the, the movie Wall Street with uh, you know, Gordon Gekko, uh, one of the first uh, private equity uh, Hagetaka vulture guys that, that broke open some of these uh, conglomerates. We also learned from agency theory that, that CEOs will not be, we, we, shareholders will not be able to rein in CEOs of these large conglomerates. Um, transaction cost economics informed us that uh, hierarchy means bureaucracy, and so if you have this huge conglomerate, you have these, uh, these, these big non-moving entities where it takes forever to make decisions, and, um, and all of this, uh, if we think of the large Japanese companies of the 80s, you know, describes them well, and big bureaucracies without decision-making uh, power. Okay, so in the United States, uh, Andrew Schleifer and, and, uh, and his colleague Wishney had a, had a paper where they said, well, see, the market got this wrong. You know, the stock market set incentives to diversify, but that was all wrong because focus is actually much better. And uh, in Japan, uh, in the 90s, we finally came to see the same thing. Uh, this is a 1999 government survey where we see that um, the question was, are you properly organized or you know, structured? And... Um, of Japan's largest businesses, more than a quarter said, no, no, we are overly diversified. Uh, from hindsight, that's actually a, a low number. But even as of 1999, people said that. Um, and therefore, and, and thus started this whole move towards sentakuto, shuchu, which is kind of the catchphrase of all of this. Um, and I translate it as uh, choose and focus. The Japanese government has some selection and concentration or sort of verbiage, but I, I, I thought choose and focus might be might be uh, more to the point. There are three ways in which companies that are overly diversified can choose and focus. Uh, 
Uh, one is they just spin off uh, some subsidiaries, just, just sell them to somebody else and get out of that market. Another is uh, to reorganize and restructure, merge some parts, um, change the entire organization, implement through go new goals. And, um, and after all of that is done, they might also actually uh, want to consolidate what that would be the, 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 the focus part of the activity, which is now that we've chosen the core businesses we're going to be in, we're going to win in that core industry, and then we're going to buy a competitor so that we can dominate the market. And so there are three separate activities to choosing and focusing. And um, uh, so th th the, the, the observation is that Japanese companies are singing this tune choosing or focusing. So I was very interested in how widespread this uh, restructuring wave you know, really is. So what I did is, I, I, at first approximation, we just look at what companies actually did. And so I looked at the Nikkei 500 firms, the 500 companies, uh, minus the financials. So I had a, a data set of 475 uh, seven, yeah, .72 companies. And I looked over the period of six years, from 2000 to 2006, when the laws had been changed and, you know, uh, there was now disclosure, but there were also new rules on mergers and acquisitions. You could spin off and the commercial code had been changed. So what were these companies doing on these three criteria of exit, reorganization, and consolidation? And I just read the annual reports and the, the Yuho, uh, Yukashoka and Hokokusho would, would include this information. Um, I found that, um, and I don't know whether you can read it in the back, so let me just read you the numbers here, that 41% uh, of Japan's largest firms in the six-year period took one action, one of these three. 27% um, took two actions, 3% took five actions, and more, you know, 2% actually did all three and, and then some. Um, only 25% of Japan's largest firms did nothing in terms of restructuring. Okay. And I, while I was at it, I could also look, well, what were they doing precisely in this, you know, this one 41% that took one action, what kind of action did they take? And that's somewhat equally divided between divestitures, spin-off stuff, uh, consolidate uh, within the industry and, and reorganize. Okay, so here are the findings of this. 75% of Japanese largest firms have undergone reorganization, right? 41% have uh, restructured in more than one way. And 25% uh, have done nothing. Now, you'll say, well, should they have? You know, what, what do we know about these 25%? That's an interesting question. Um, some of them were already highly focused, so there was nothing to do. Um, but, but some of them maybe are lagging behind, and I'll say something more about that, too. Um, now, you might say, well, yeah, gee whiz, don't, don't companies reorganize all the time. I mean, isn't that what they're supposed to do? And, uh, and so indeed, uh, we need to compare this with something. Um, and we know, again, going back to the United States, uh, there were some very careful studies that looked at that period from hindsight. And, and Marquitas, in particular, did a lot of this. He found that the Fortune 500 firms, looking at the, the decade of the 80s, that 20% as a conservative estimate, but more likely 50% of Fortune 500 firms refocused, restructured in the 1980s, right? So comparing this with Japan, we actually see, gee whiz, you know, there is a, there is a difference. Japan's numbers are higher. Um, this, this restructuring wave in Japan is a truly remarkable episode in, 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 in global business history. It is bigger as an, uh, as an activity than the 1980s uh, 
in, in the US, just counting of efforts at, at doing this. All right. Um, neither was this done in one industry or uh, you know, two industries. So this is, I just took the sample and divided it by industries, and we might not be able to, to read this, but basically these are 27 industries. At the high end here, we have textiles and paper and pulp, uh, non-iron metals and telecommunication. At the low end, we have real estate and glass and cement. I spent a lot of time looking at this. This is an average number per reorganization per industry. I spent a lot of time looking at this, and there's no pattern that that immediately jumps out of this. It's not that the old Japan industries are, are, are doing more of it or, or that the bubble industries are doing more of it. Um, it's, it's across the board. Okay. So, um, so then what are the new incentives or why is this happening? And now we're going to, to the new Japan. In the old Japan, the incentives faced by CEOs were instability and you know, risk of survival, so they would buy insurance. In the new Japan, uh, CEOs are, are going after something else entirely, namely efficiency and profitability. Um, and that is um, because shareholders want to see this. And, and we now need to look at the shareholders, and we'll do that in a moment. Um, part of it is that there's just more, uh, there's more information. There's no longer this quiet cross-subsidization across large conglomerates, diversified companies, where at the end everybody makes a little profit. I don't know whether this has ever occurred to you, but if you look at old Japanese corporate reports, annual reports, all subsidiaries always made a little profit. And that's highly unlikely that that was actually the truth. In reality, there was cross-subsidization you know, across these business units. Um, and, um, and what that means for, for CEOs is that they have to be nimble, lean, and mean, and they have to produce these ROEs and ROAs, and part of this is just restructuring the business so that the ROEs go up, but part of it is also actually to increase profitability so that, that shareholders are happy. Right. And uh, the most important uh, message here is that companies can no longer just be also rands in all kinds of industries just to be represented in this industry, you know, costs at, uh, you know, at, uh, no matter, you know, sales at any cost. Uh, that no longer works. Okay, and then there's a, there's a big issue, and, and I look forward maybe to discussing this with the, some of you uh, who know more about this area than I do, but the, 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 the rubber hits the road when you have to change people towards efficiency and accountability and that sort of thing, and in, a, in the Japanese environment, uh, that might be particularly complicated. Um, okay. Let me, uh, so, so then uh, before I go down to the shareholders, uh, the, the big message here is what we knew about Japan therefore is no longer true because the, the logic has changed, right? The business groups will have to reposition to help companies to be lean, mean, nimble, and competitive, right? Uh, the main bank system for all intents and purposes uh, is gone for large firms because uh, it's just not a very efficient way of, of financing, nor is it the most, you know, easiest at all times, and companies have diversified their sources of finance. Um, the internal processes of corporate governance have been externalized uh, because the shareholder structure has changed dramatically, which I will show you in just a moment. Um, and then there's this whole issue of lifetime employment, which I want to cut short here because that's a torque in and of itself, but um, anecdotally, you, you, you know this just by way of living here, that there have been great changes. And what lifetime employees are asked to do and, and how many of them are actually lifetime employees. 
Um, and then the government reorganization I've already mentioned, Koizumi has made a lot of changes in terms of leave it to the market. Okay, so what we knew about post-war Japan is no longer true. Well, what, is, what is true then? And, and I want to talk a little bit about this, uh, the, the hagetaka, uh, because I thought that you might find it uh, interesting to, to hear my perspective coming in from, you know, from with the story from, from through the U.S. lens. Um, here's really what happened. Uh, stable shareholdings beginning in 1998 begin to, began to decline. Uh, what this counts here is um, percent of firms that engaged in, in cross-shareholding, and then there is a uh, uh, somewhat, somewhat lower line here, which is the reciprocal things, which is, you know, I, I own a, a percentage of your shares and you own mine, and then we're, we're all good friends. All of this has declined for a number of reasons, um, uh, some of which are irreversible, which makes this a strategic change. The, the biggest reason why these cross-shareholdings have disappeared is that there was actually a law, which in and of itself is a sign of New Japan. Um, the banking crisis was so, um, and it made it clear that, that banks were, were easily destabilized, which is not a good thing, so the bank regulators actually said, you know what, you can't own all these corporate shareholdings. You have to limit your corporate shareholdings to your tier one capital. You can't own more than what you're worth yourself. So the banks actually had to dispose of 17 trillion yen worth of stocks, and they did so in a period of two years. Um, and that's irreversible because that's a law. Corporations uh, no longer saw the benefit of these cross-shareholdings because they didn't earn a penny, and it wasn't clear that you know, this insurance uh, idea of the business groups was, was that important anymore. Okay. So, um, and there's, there's a lot of evidence that, that this is what companies were thinking. Oh, and by the way, they now have to disclose the losses on their, co on their shareholding portfolios. So uh, in a, at a time where profits are depressed, you don't want you know, to have all these shareholdings. And when profits went bank up, back up in 2002, companies said, well, this is great. You know, we, we don't have these cross-shareholdings to worry about. Well, if you have cross-shareholdings dissolve, who bought them? Right? And somebody has to pick this up. And, uh, and this is where the foreigners come in. Although foreigners I should use in inverted commerce, as so, uh, so I'll show in a moment. Uh, this is the uh, Tokyo Stock Exchange shareholder structure. And um, what we knew about Japan was that 75% of the shares traded at the Tokyo Stock Exchange were in the hand of banks and corporations. This is the cross-shareholding phenomenon expressed in a different um, if we look in 2007, what we find is that 18% of shares traded at the Tokyo Stock Exchange are now held by what are called trust banks. And 28% of the shares are uh, owned by what is called foreigners. So we need to look at who these are because this is, these are now the, together the majority owners of Japanese companies. Okay. These uh, trust banks are very interesting. Um, the, the, it used to be a, a fairly simple exercise. If you wanted to know what corporate group a company like Matsushita belonged to, you would go and you would you'd look at the Kigyo Kiretsu Sodan or the company handbook and you would look at the major shareholders and you would find that Sumitomo Bank owned 4.7% and another Sumitomo company owned another whatever, 2%. Uh, so, oh yeah, Sumitomo Group, we understand this. If you do this now, what you find is that the ubiquitous large shareholders in Japan are 
uh, three places called the Master Trust Bank of Japan, the Japan Trust Bank, or something like that, and the Services Trust Bank of Japan. And there, every single large company is major is 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 owned to to something like 12 to 18 percent by these three trust banks. What they are, they are these. Uh, trusts of trusts, and so basically they're custodians for companies, pension funds, and so forth. But uh, you know, whatever their whatever their activities, the important point here is there's no longer a corporate group that 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 holds these shares and some sort of Sumitomo Bank guy coming to a, a meeting. Um, these are now just custodians voting on proxy, and and most of the the ultimate owners just say, well, just vote with whatever you think. Um, and, and then uh, this is propped up by, by, a, by a renewed interest in investment fund investment in Japan. So we have these institutional investors. Okay. How about the foreigners? Uh, the foreigners are, first of all, what you would think, places like CalPERS, uh, which actually, uh, given that I'm at the University of California, uh, I, I guess takes care of my pension money. Uh, so it's a California public employees uh, pension organization. Then there are some street names. And street names are just uh, Chase Manhattan, Chase Street, <coughs> something like that. And they, they are also just custodians. So if you were in London and you wanted to own uh, stock of Matsushita, then you could just go to Chase and put your money in, and they would just invest it here. Then, of course, there are private equity funds, of uh, which you've heard a lot, uh, the Ripplewoods of this world, and, and Cerebus, and Lone Star, and Golden Sachs, and Merrill Lynch, and so forth and so on. Right? Um, what is sometimes overlooked is that the foreigners also include um, uh, little places that are run by, and I'm stereotypically, uh, run by former Tokyo Stock Exchange employees that have a little office in Kayabacho. And uh, they, they are registered in the Cayman Islands, and they trade out of Singapore because that's cheaper. But they're actually Japanese, and they're, they're investing Japanese money. And that is also included in the foreigners. The point here is, though, that these guys compete on a very different level. They compete for returns. Right? Whether they're Japanese or not, they compete for returns. Um, oh, one more thing, I'm sorry. Um, a lot of the money that these guys are investing in Japan, incidentally, is also Japanese money. We know that, that Mitsubishi has a lot of money in, in Ripperwood, but we also know that um, we're pretty sure that a lot of these street names and these anonymous foreign investors are actually investing Japanese money that is, uh, for whatever reason, uh, channeled through New York and London to come back to, to Japan. Okay. So when we hear about 28% of, of, of stocks owned are owned by foreigners, that's a, that's a complicated measure. But what's important here is that, that these guys compete on return on investment. Right? They need to produce returns. OK. So why are they suddenly in Japan? There's all kinds of good reasons. Um, I would say, most importantly, that there's no transparency and, and, and disclosure. And so they, they know what they're doing. Uh, bef before 1998, Japan was more like a casino, right? because these, these annual reports were not so reliable, and so now they are, and that's good. Um, some of these private equity funds saw the dollar falling before it started falling, so they made the right bet. And um, the banking crisis, I already mentioned the banks had to switch to these direct bad loan disposals where they would just sell collateral underlying bad loans. And so there was a lot of great stuff to be had at 
10 cents to the dollar. And the American investment uh, community, at least some of these private equity funds, saw this happen as it happened. And we're very early and very fast here. Okay. So, um, so we have new investors, we have new shareholders, and we get new activity. And some of you may have seen these numbers, but, but let me just um, you know, visualize this after all. Uh, anyway, so we have here um, mergers and acquisitions, numbers of deals, and they are ordinarily divided into three flavors. One is domestic, so one Japanese company merging with another Japanese company. One is in-out, so Japanese companies buying stuff abroad. And then uh, out-in, foreigners coming to Japan and buying stuff. Right? And what we see is that in the old days, to the extent there was any activity, it was mostly red, meaning Japanese companies going abroad to buy other, you know, buy Rockefeller Center or whatever they bought. Um, and um, it was only in the 90s here that the blue bars are getting a little bigger. And then what we see here is that this entire, or almost the entire M&A activity is driven by domestic mergers. So Japanese companies merging or acquiring Japanese companies. So that's the first important thing. Um, now, some people will say, well, gee whiz, that's still low, you know, even if it's now at, uh, actually, this last year it was almost 3,000, 2,700. Um, you might say that that's still low, that an that economy of the size of Japan should have many more. What I'm more interested in is this change in the slope of this, uh, because that, that is a remarkable uh, change. Now, we could argue there's lots of reasons why this is still low, but um, if we want to explain what happened here, then clearly this is the, uh, the change in laws that made possible spin-offs, you know, uh, equity swaps, and all of those kinds of things, and that has then triggered this domestic M&A activity. Uh, data show also, you know, what type of Japanese uh, activity uh, occurred. And what I want to uh, guide your attention to here are these red bars. So in the old days, the, the, the blue bars, these were mergers, you know, Mitsubishi materials and Mitsubishi something or other would merge into, you know, ever better Mitsubishi materials. So you would get within corporate groups, you would get mergers and that sort of thing. The, the recent activity is the red bars, and the red bars are uh, majority control takeovers. So Japanese companies buying majority stakes in other Japanese companies. And so it's actually not driven by the foreigner so much as it is by, by, by Japanese. Which leads me to the hostile takeovers, and, and then I want to wrap this up. But uh, this is, of course, the talk of the day, and this is what you read in the newspapers. Um, interestingly, we don't have good data on hostile takeovers, because uh, what is a hostile takeover uh, is a very difficult thing to define. You could say, well, it needs a tender offer to be hostile. But uh, that's, that, that may be too restrictive. Um, sometimes these takeovers are called friendly, just so that you know, people save face and that sort of thing. Um, according to Rikoff, uh, on, on Japanese data, what, we, what we've seen is an increase in a, in a matter of a decade from one or five hostile takeovers, successful hostile takeovers, a year to 79. And again, uh, the interesting thing here is how did this thing suddenly slope up so you know, dramatically? And uh, part of the reason is uh, the change, the, the, the decline of cross-shareholdings. Part of the reason is the arrival of new investors. And part of the reason is that there's stuff, uh, that there's information and there's, there, there's a market for, for goods and assets. Okay. 
Um, now, the interpretation of these hostile takeovers, of course, uh, varies widely. And if Ronald Doerr was standing next to me, he would give you a whole lecture on how this is all horrible uh, because it undermines the values. And, uh, of, uh, and he's not entirely wrong, I think. Um, but what's interesting about it, if you look at it from an economic perspective, is that it has greatly pushed the weeding out of inefficient firms in Japan. And uh, I'm sure you've all followed the, um, you know, the life door thing. And then let me remind you of, uh, of uh, summer uh, two years ago when we saw the first kind of old Japan intra-industry bits, right, when OG paper wanted to take over Hokuetsu. That was remarkable because it was an old Japan, stuffy, you know, all suited up, and they were getting it and going at each other. And that, so that was remarkable for its implications for uh, consolidation within uh, Japanese industries. Uh, the Bulldog case uh, is more recent, so this might be fresher in memory. I'll say a little bit more about that. And then, of course, last week's Adidas uh, event, are very interesting in the sense that they uh, truly challenge the way uh, share, Japanese shareholders think about the value of shareholding. Um, let, me, let me talk a little bit about Bulldog, and then I'll, I'll uh, uh, interpret this. You may recall what happened there is that the that, uh, U.S. Steel Partners, which is a, a private equity fund, which actually, uh, according to some, is a, is a value investor. That they're in for the long run. They have money in some 30 companies. And... Um, they were interested in bulldog sauce, which makes, of course, the condiments. Um, bulldog actually had just uh, uh, launched a hostile takeover of a competitor. So they were not, not alien to, to this sort of thing. They had a, a large market share, and Stu Partner owned 10% or 10.5% and wanted more. Bulldog said, no, no, um, let's launch a poison pill. Uh, to do that, uh, in order to launch a poison pill, you need the majority of the at the shareholder meeting. And um, lo and behold, the majority of the shareholders said, yeah, that's fine, we want this poison pill. In the meantime, Bulldog had actually gone to court, this goes back to the new demand for law, and said, well, you can't, you, the, the Japanese poison pill is actually illegal because it discriminates against one investor over all other, uh, shareholder, over all other shareholders. And the courts said, no, no, that's not discrimination because you're different. So you're a different investor because you're a vulture fund, and because you're a vulture fund, we can discriminate against you. And so you may recall how this you was... You said that Bulldog went to court. Could you I'm sorry. Steel Partners... Thank you, John. Uh, Steel Partners went to court, right? And, and so Steel Partners was found to be an abusive uh, uh, investor, and therefore discrimination, discriminating against them was just fine. Uh, the upshot of, of it all was that... Um, um, the shareholders of Bulldog voted for the poison pill, knowing that this would reduce the value of the stock. No sooner had they signed off on the poison pill that, that they go to the stock market and sell it all. So if you look at the price of the Bulldog shares, it took a, a huge dive within a week of that vote, not even the final payout. Right? So the shareholders basically voted to reduce the value of their shareholdings. And that they realized afterwards. Well, wait a minute. Had we voted the other way, uh, it might have gone the other way, uh, namely up. So the Adidas case is interesting because it's a replay of this, except that now the shareholders have learned their lesson. Uh, plus, there are more foreigners there too. But um, but so you to, to the question: Can this be good? I mean, 
why, why am I so excited about Japan and, and these hostile takeovers? And, and in spite of what, what Ron Doerr says about the values, and, and, and rightly so, um, I think this is actually a great episode. And it plays into my larger story of corporate renewal and restructuring because um, you don't, it doesn't matter whether these takeover bids are successful or not. What matters is that they can happen and that they are happening. And if you're a Japanese CEO, whatever, a large company or small company, you might be a CEO of JFE Holdings, the, the large steel company, or a bulldog sauce. If you're a Japanese CEO, you know that this is happening, and so what you do is you change your ways. You're worried about your ROEs and ROIs and ROAs and whatever numbers there may be that impress shareholders. You're worried about your performance because you want to impress these shareholders so that when there is a hostile takeover bit that they'll stick with you because they think in the long run they make more money sticking with you. And you will just uh, increase your efficiencies, focus on certain businesses, and compete in those businesses so that you can keep your shareholders happy. So I think this whole hostile takeover uh, you know, wave is at the same time an expression of this change that has happened, and it reinforces the ongoing corporate restructuring uh, in Japan. Short term, there might be social costs with this weeding out, but in the long run, this, this can only be good for the Japanese economy. All right, so, um, so enough of, of me. Let, me. let me just, I have, I have three more slides, and so I want to summarize why, why this is important and why we care. Um, so first of all, um, uh, all Japan's incentives for CEOs, anzen daiichi, you know, don't take any risks, you know, don't go under, you know, do whatever it takes to diversify. Um, this has changed. The new rational Japanese CEO is um, is one that that is that is risk neutral as as economists, but it, it takes every he or she takes every investment <laughs> at its own face value times the probability that it will succeed, rather than the sort of relational group thing. Right. Um, and so the new Japan competitive repositioning occurs from sales towards profitability and from diversification towards focus. Right. What does that mean for Japan? Well, I mean, it's obvious. Uh, the leading firms are adjusting. They're back. We have growth. It's great. Um, there are always laggards. Uh, and so just to preempt your first question, and I'm sure one of you would have asked me this, well, you know, how about these old Japan guys? Aren't they muddling through? Aren't they resisting this? Isn't there? And you, you will find a name of a company that, that is lagging. Um, I'm positive on these developments. Only because in case after case where there is a laggard, what I see is that the influence is waning, that, that the, the old Japan thinking is uh, becoming less important in decision making by a larger number of people. And so it'll take a little bit. We're not there yet. But, um, but the influence of, of old Japan is, is, is up. As far as I am um, observing it is on the out, but I look forward to discussing this. Um, I started, this, I started this out saying that uh, the reason that this transformation is overlooked is that it's not an end product, but let's not be fooled by this. I mean, okay, so we don't see it on, you know, this microphone might say it's assembled in, in China by, you know, actually that's a Sony. Okay, good. Um, but, but we don't see it that often anymore, right? And products don't look as if, you know, they're made by Japanese firms, but, but it's all in the back and in the, in the behind. And, um, 
the biggest fun I had writing this book was actually looking at new market entrants and new types of companies like kakaku.com which is a price comparison website. And it's a great story about a 23-year-old guy who opens this company in 1995, and he basically revolutionizes, uh, helps revolutionize Japanese consumer markets by bringing choice and information to consumers uh, that had previously, of course, been quite restrained in their, in their activities. So that was a lot of fun, and there's a lot of evidence that this is happening and how it's happening. Um, I think the most important uh, long-term positive thing that comes out of all of this is that actors that have been hitherto uh, marginalized in, in Japan's political economy are now empowered. And, uh, and these are consumers, uh, entrepreneurs, and employees. And, and I, could, I could have said women, 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 but, uh, but they're, also, they're, they're, they're part of, this, of each of these three groups. Um, that that uh, there, are, there are now, there's larger variety of, of career tracks, career choices, consumer choices, there's just choice. And the beauty of choice in the market is once you have unleashed it, you can't, you can't rein it back in. So I think it's inconceivable that, that the Japanese retail system will, will reappropriate the consumer choice. It's just not happening. So it's great. It's here to stay. All right, uh, final slide. Um, and, and, and so what does this mean for the world? Right? You might say, well, you know, who cares about Japan? Isn't China the next new thing? And, uh, and certainly in America, this is what I would be asked. You know, why do we care? You know, we've listened to you for an hour now. You know, what, what, what does it mean? And, um, and the thing is that um, we, can, we can ignore the new Japanese competitive at our own peril. I mean, it's like if, if people that are in charge of global strategy at the large multinational companies in the U.S. and Europe uh, overlook this, they'll just lose out. Um, so that's the biggest point. The second point, and this is more to an American audience, obviously you know this, but um, you would be surprised if you spent some time in the U.S. how parochial um, Americans can be, uh, even when it comes to looking at the globe, because Americans right now only see China. There's, there's no other place. And, and they think that there's, there's no other place to mass produce than China. And so this is really uh, directed at the American audience. Uh, Asia is more than China, but we can know that. Um, uh, Samsung, Korea is very interesting in all of this. Samsung's uh, chairman, before he bowed out uh, just last week, was actually uh, cited saying that, that the problem is that China's catching up, Japan continues to lead, they've, they've got their groove back, and we're sandwiched in the middle. So, uh, so Samsung is now singing the tune and humming the mantra of choose and focus. So it'll be interesting to observe that. And so, um, and I've you've heard me say this three times now, but just so that it sticks, uh, I think that uh, just relying on what we used to know about Japan and its business groups and left-hand employment is, uh, is a dangerous proposition.